Catherine Nichols. I'm here with Sandra Newman, and this is Lit Century, our podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This is our second episode on Nightwood by Juna Barnes from 1936. Last week, we talked about how it related to uh, the contemporary ideas about queerness and the fascism that was rising at the time. Uh, and this week, we're going to talk about Barnes's life and her place in modernism and the real-life people that her characters were based on. Um, Sandy found some amazing stuff, uh, but first um, she's going to actually tell us about the characters themselves in the book in case you either haven't read it or would like a refresher. Here she is. There are Dr. Matthew O'Connor, who is the lamenting voice of the novel, who's sort of, what if James Joyce was a trans woman who was drunk all the time? Then we have Robin Vogt, the love interest, who's a lost soul perpetually drunk and wandering off to be mindlessly promiscuous in an alleyway. Felix Folkbein, who marries Robin with the idea of starting a dynasty and who's a character who's completely composed of the class anxiety of being half of noble blood, specifically German blood, and half Jewish in, um, in 1936, keeping in mind. And then there's Nora Flood, who's in love with Robin Vogt, and that's all we ever really need to know about her. She's, she's in love with her, she has an affair with her, and then loses her. And finally, Jenny Petherbridge, to whom Nora Flood loses Robin, um, and therefore Jenny Petherbridge is the antagonist. So to talk about Nightwood's context, I wanted to start with the idea of archetypes um, and T.S. Eliot. Uh, Eliot was a big fan of Nightwood and helped get it published, so he's clearly part of Barnes's artistic context. But then there are some big differences in how they think that stood out to me. And really, it's really about about this idea of archetypes. Um, it was pretty new and very popular when they were writing. Um, it's a way of reading a story, more or less, as a primal emanation of human nature rather than something um, kind of made by an individual um, through artistry. Um, there's clearly a power dynamic inside describing something as an archetype because you're taking something someone made and you're using it as a metaphor for your own interior states. And you're also saying that it reflects a part of human nature um, that can't ever really change um, and that sort of belongs to everyone almost equally. Um, so if we're talking about Freud's idea of the Oedipus complex, for example, um, he could be observing that a lot of men in his society are angry at their fathers. Uh, instead of thinking, like, maybe the fathers deserve it, maybe they should change their culture around fatherhood. <laughs> maybe uh, they, you know, need to teach men to be more connected and nurturing with their children. Um, instead, he he sort of posits like, oh, there's a story. It's just human nature. Um, so, um, so he's using a power dynamic um, to sort of claim that story as something that's just human nature as opposed to something that was made in a specific time and place for a reason. Um, but then he's also continuing some power dynamics by saying like, this is... A circumstance that couldn't ever change because um, it's just human nature. Um, and anyone who does want to change it is probably lying to themselves. Um, I don't want to go into too much detail with Elliot's work because I think that I would get way too far off course um, away from Barnes. Um, but using untranslated parts of other languages in his work and um, using stories as archetypes, um, it's a big part of what he's known for. 
um, if other poets were to uh, were to do those things, I think they'd be probably compared to Eliot in reviews. Um, but so, yeah, the thing that, that really stood out to me is that I just don't think that Barnes is thinking in these terms at all. I don't think she thinks that um, anyone is a metaphor for anyone. Um, and I think she's extremely aware of, of where her characters um, exist in the exact power dynamics that would make them kind of seem seem like they, they could be um, if, if it were, say, Elliot writing. Um, but they just aren't. Well, I'm just going to like say what that brings up in me, you know? Um, so, so I've been thinking that cause there's a lot of like questionable stuff in Nightwood, particularly about Jews. I can, you know, I can give you quotes if you want, but, uh, but let's leave that to one side. Jews, Irish people, um, like there's stuff like that. So, so she's sort of interesting in that she's accepting some of these categories that that we associate with Nazism and, and fascism and prejudice of all kinds. But she's actually only on the side of the people who are stigmatized. So she's accepting that there is a day and a night and that there is this dichotomy, but she's wholly, she cannot conceive any real life, any, any soul life outside of the night, outside of being one of the Jews. Um, and, and so it's sort of, it's sort of interesting like there there are no characters in this book who are not somehow subaltern who aren't somehow outlawed there is not a single character who is a person of the day um and this kind of um now I'm trying to come back to what you were saying about the folklore and so on and and I do like I see Juno Barnes as somebody who just lived outside of those systems from the time that she was born. You know, she had this very strange family where her her father was a bigamist and he had both of the wives living in the house. And then when Gina Barnes is 17, he tries to marry her off, but without without benefit of clergy. So essentially just kind of selling her as a, as a sexual partner to his 52-year-old friend, and she had to escape all of that. And, you know, she just never had a remotely normal life or any possibility to have a place in this kind of daytime scheme of how things should be. And she's writing just from outside of all of that as if we all understand that's how it is. I think that's the thing that's missing from her perspective on what somebody might get from, for instance, being Jewish in a positive way, that she only sees as, like... You're rejected from daytime society. Therefore, you must want to hang out in this murky world of heartbreak all the time. (laughs) But she definitely doesn't have a perspective that it could be valuable to have a tradition or to have stories that are meaningful to you that build you and don't just... I don't think she she really had much of an insight into the existence of nurturing traditions or like hierarchies that had any sort of positive hierarchies including the family that had any sort of positive aspect whatsoever she she was just born a bohemian she lived as a bohemian she didn't have a good experience of bohemia but she had no other experience um yeah absolutely and i think that's sort of why this book seems like we discussed um not on the record it seems so politically neutral for a book that comes out in 1936 
about people who are really in danger. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Like all of these people, the the disabled son, the Jewish characters, the circus people, the gay people, everyone would be able to feel the danger in 1936. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm just, can I put in my quote here? Please. I want to put in a quote. Okay, so this is from a letter that Gina Barnes wrote um, I think sh- shortly after the writing of Nightwood, as the as World War II was really beginning to ramp up, um, probably it is a reaction from all the trouble now in the world, the coming war, apparently war all over the place. The smell of death is already hanging in the clothes of the nations. And why, what sort of people would we all be if not depressed? And a strong sense of futility over every impulse to create. Create? What for? A schoolteacher said the other day that she could barely get through her hours for depression. She could not take any pleasure in teaching children who were destined for cannon fodder. Can you blame her? And so that's like Gina Barnes's state of mind um, about the world. And you don't really see that in Nightwood except as a mood. But um, but it's also like the, the state of mind of, of the entire population in some way, as I think we can identify with this to a large degree. I think we can, but I think that the thing that we have that she personally was missing is a feeling that that if you don't just just daydream and cry, if you like pay a lot of attention to the details of how things are done, you can actually meaningfully make things better. Like that I mean, I think that modernism in general kind of maybe bought a very romantic idea about how much good you were doing for the world by just um, feeling bad and being a little imprecise. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I think this book is definitely a feeling bad and being a little imprecise kind of book. But um, I mean, I think that's something that, for instance, the uh, like um, political organization around gay rights now um, like maybe it's bringing everything out into the daytime world, but in some in some ways, but in other ways, it's actually making people's lives better. In sort of material ways, yeah, like preventing people from being fired and um, and this goes back to what you were saying. You were saying about the Oedipus complex. If you believe in the Oedipus complex and that things are inalterably set in this way, and it's like this primordial force which we can't overcome then gay rights is a nonsense there will never be gay rights because the human race cannot change so at, at a certain point we began to think well you know maybe we should try <laughs> and so yeah, we changed things like, and it turned out it's not true like could we posit a dad who is nurturing yes like, is it could possible we try that could we have a shot at it <laughs> at exactly. least exactly and um, you know, and Gina Barnes was far too depressed to even conceive of such a thing or to conceive of herself as having any power within the systems that she saw around her. But Yeah, and I, I mean, there definitely were people who were kind of keeping track of the details in this oh, time. Oh, and, and she yeah, I think it, in this time, them. like in the, in the world of literature at this time, you had modernism and socialist realism. So if you were trying to write politically, you, you wrote some kind of... Like dreary agitprop, and uh, <laughs> people hadn't really realized that you could, like, somehow square that circle and do both at once.
Do you want to um, tell more about the Romana clay elements? Oh, yeah, the Romana clay. Okay, so I, I'm sure I got way too much into this. I'm, I was so into exactly, this. Exactly. But, um, okay. <laughs> so, so, of course, Nora Flood is Gina Barnes herself. And there's even a point where she's, like, in one of her very long, like, confessional episodes with the doctor, he's telling her, can you not put down the pen, you know, and rest? Like, she's, he's trying to convince Juna Barnes to just give up writing this novel because it's too upsetting. So Nora Flood is Juna herself, and then Robin Vogt is uh, the great love of, of Nora is Juna's great love, Thelma Wood, but it also is kind of um, mixed together with a, a close friend of Juna, Baroness Elsa von Freitag Loringhoven, who sounds very grand, but she was actually like really just like an American who, and it's just, this world is so crazy that like Elsa first married a character who was one of the characters Felix in the novel is based on, who's just this weird sociopath who posed as a baron like Felix in the book and the name of Felix comes from the fake name that he used when he posed as a baron but then Elsa went on to marry a real baron oh, really? um, so <laughs> yeah yeah and she, she was also like the girlfriend of Marcel Duchamp she, she just had this she's just this crazy character I'm gonna find like there's like in fact oh this is a great a great thing about Elsa von Freitag Loringhoven when she lived in New York it was said that Wallace Stevens was afraid to travel below 14th Street because of her. <laughs> she was like this, and this is like a description of her. At times, the Baroness's head was shaved and shellacked. She came to Christine's restaurant dressed in a trailing blue-green dress, a peacock fan in her hands, a canceled pink stamp plastered to her cheek, her lips painted black, her face powder gleaming bright yellow, a coal scuttle on her head strapped to her chin like a helmet. Um, so she's, she's hot topic like quite a remarkable of the era yeah. must have been wild. Yeah, like we think of like our parents' generation, like somehow we always think of them as being more staid than us, but you know, but really like everybody was always crazy. Ooh, and it was completely nuts. <laughs> so anyway, Elsa actually committed suicide in nineteen twenty seven, which is the year in which we're told in the novel Robin Vote the love interest, meets Jenny Petherbridge, who will take her away from Nora. Um, and I just want to like tell you who Jenny Petherbridge is. If I can find her. There she is. Okay, so Jenny Petherbridge was a, is based on Alice McRae Metcalf, and I think she's really funny. Like, Of course, Gina Barnes is absolutely just tears Jenny Petherbridge to shreds in so many wonderful ways. It's one of the most, you know, like my my ex left me for you, and now I'm going to say all of the shittiest things that I possibly can about a person, and she's very convincing. They were and I think it was eyebrow singingly mean. <laughs> yes, I would say, it's worth reading the book just for that. Actually, <laughs> it's so great. It's the most. It's like a masterpiece of cattiness. And the real Alice McRae Metcalf. This is how boring she was. Like Thelma Wood, like the other person who Robin Vogt is based on, who was like just a historically bad girlfriend and this is what but she's also remembered has for. She sexually also sexually magnetic in her Wikipedia article. So that's like 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's worth living for, right there. The, she's she's great, but maybe a little sociopathic. So she, so this Alice McRae Metcalf, who Thelma Wood left Gina Barnes for and ruined her life too. Um, she ended her life like after being like in Paris and like the circle of Natalie Barney with all these great people, Radcliffe Hall and everybody. She moves back to the United States to Bridgeport, Connecticut, where she opened an antique shop called Ye Kit and Caboodle, where the proceeds went to the care of stray animals in the area, which is like really like the sad history of lesbianism in our time. Um, <laughs> right there. One minute you're in Paris <laughs> at a salon with Juna Barnes and, uh, and the next second you're running an antique shop in Bridgeport, Connecticut called Ye Kit and Caboodle. <laughs> So anyway, so basically, Juno Barnes was absolutely right to to scorn her, ex- to uh, to eviscerate Jenny Petherbridge and make fun of how completely boring and mediocre she was. Um, sorry to anybody who owns an antique shop in Bridgeport, Connecticut, who's listening to this. I'm sure you, I'm sure you're not like this, and we have all these terrible, terrible stereotypes of what you are like, and you're actually fascinating. Um, okay, so anyway, well, they so probably, Felix yeah. is also like, okay, Felix is based on two people also, like, it's, it's, unfortunately, this is really complicated. So one of them was Guido Bruno, who was a, this crazy empresario and publisher who was, who just continually was being put in prison f- by the authorities for breaking laws against publishing pornography, um, which at that time, it was it was like he was publishing stuff like Ulysses. He was he published Juno Barnes's first books, and then he would get thrown into prison. Um, and the other person is, of course, as we've we've mentioned, Baroness Elsa's first husband, Felix Grave, who is a, like a totally amazing and fascinating person who. Like one, he was arrested for fraud and spent a year in prison, in, in which he wrote. A, a Romana Clay. Was it called Ye Kitten About Elsa's sexual adventures. I wish it, maybe it was, <laughs> I don't know. I haven't written that down, so maybe it was called Ye Kitten Caboodle. But anyway, it's about Elsa's sexual adventures, and it completely pilloried everyone they knew. So when they, he got out of prison, they had to skip town. So they run off and then are suddenly like running a farm in Kentucky. Then he dumps her and moves to Canada and changes his name. And people actually did not know who it was, like that this was the same person for many, many years. Like it was only relatively recently discovered. But he became a school teacher in the Canadian West, where he became famous for writing novels about being a pioneer on the Canadian prairie wow. and became a member of the Royal Society and all of this under a fake name, like just had a completely different fake, assumed personality. I want to know what he was daydreaming about five minutes before he decided to go. Like, did he fully know that he was going to be writing these novels at like when he set out or was he like, I want to be a school teacher? I have no idea. Like again, like one second you're living in Switzerland, impersonating a baron. And the next second you're a school teacher in the Canadian West writing novels about the prairie. Like well, what on earth? You can definitely get from Nightwood is that these people do not consider Europe to be um, necessarily very romantic. Like, yes, that's. I true. think they they think they're like, oh, this is crowded with meaning, and everybody has their Tom Buchanan style 
um, Nazi speech prepared. If only I could go to the wide open prairies of Canada and just like <laughs> have some peace to change my name to something more school teacherly. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I've just got to say who the doctor is because Please, this is the easiest one. So Dr. Matthew O'Connor in the book who completely takes over the book and just runs away with it and <laughs> and just wastes everyone's time gloriously. Um, is, a, is a real person called Dan Mahoney who apparently, according to Juna Barnes, just was exactly like that with absolutely no difference. <laughs> <laughs> and he did all those things. Like he really was. He, he combined the he was an abortionist, a professional boxer, and a quasi-confessor to literary women, according to the memoir I've written about this period. And and he was a very good friend of Juna Barnes, and they continued to be friends for many, many years. He continued writing to her long after she was a recluse. Wow. Yeah. I mean, why why can't we know that guy? Um, well, maybe we do, but... Um he like hasn't shown his second identity to us like I told I definitely don't know that guy and I'm a, I'm a literary woman and I need a quasi confessor <laughs> no, I'm just thinking I like do. maybe like maybe it's like the person at the next cafe table and they're talking to like the other literary uh, woman I don't know I guess no, so. this is a silly this is silly I'm gonna cut this from the record <laughs> um, the New York Times piece that you I will actually find it so we can give people the URL to to find this piece because it really is amazing. It's, yeah, it's, it's amazing about the changes in publishing. It's amazing about the last 40 years of her life, which she spent as a recluse in, in New York City, like in the midst of a patch in place where E.E. E. Cummings used to come and call to her up in her window, Juno, are you still alive? And she, you know, she would have to respond so that her body could be found if she didn't respond. Well... Just the fact that her publisher is so eager to publish something that she writes, even though he knows that no one's going to buy it and he's not going to make any money off it. He comes to her house and he sees her wearing a transparent muslin gown that's longer than floor length and it's gathered at the neck with a black ribbon and she's wearing nothing underneath. And she's like crying and climbing the stairs and he's like, uh, I don't want to make her embarrassed by saying that I can see that she's naked under this like extremely <laughs> dramatic garment. And he's like, and what's wonderful is that the reason she's crying is because, as it turns out, her good friend Dag Hammarskjöld, the UN Secretary General, General, has just who is also like her translator into Swedish, has just died in a plane crash. Um. Yeah, so this is the story of the last time he sees her. And it's such a different literary culture to think that um, a writer who'd been a recluse at that point for many years, that her... So this is the um, Giroux of FSG. Um, Mm -hmm. He's going and looking for her to ask her to to please let him publish some of her uh, kind of obscure and difficult texts that um, are not popular Um, none of her books ever made a penny for anyone yeah it it just seems like there's some um, some love of beauty 
inside yes. these relationships. Um, that's that's kind of wonderful to think about because I don't think that that's like the story of most of book publishing. It's not just like, oh, it's in the past. I mean, that's not the world that Dickens lived in, certainly. Um, and it's not the world that Proust lived in. Um, it, it's just it's a, it's the relationships a, that she had. There's this in-between thing in the in the world of modernism where, I mean, and Gina Barnes was also subsidized throughout her life by Peggy Guggenheim, who just paid all her bills for decades. Uh, so there's this kind all of her, the, uh, these muslin gown bills. Yeah, that muslin gown was paid for by Peggy Guggenheim. <laughs> um, so it's they're they're sort of publishing books, but they're also sort of working under the patronage of of wealthy people, as Joyce was as well. So it's. It's sort of strange, and publishing itself works that way too, to some degree, and still does. One of my publishers is bankrolled by a wealthy person, um, and that allows them to publish things they could not otherwise publish. But at that time, it was much more mainstream and much more a part of the world and much more accepted and understood, I think. Yeah, it's interesting because unlike appreciation of dolls clowns and spiders i think that that spirit is still in our culture i just think it's in different places interesting i mean i do think that the a lot of the push has moved from sponsoring and this goes with what we've been talking about it goes from sponsoring beauty to sponsoring political projects that might make a better world um yeah i think Oh, I think a lot of things. It would be a whole other podcast. Luckily, we have okay. a whole other podcast. We will have <laughs> so maybe podcasts. we should go to that podcast. Let's and hit take a stop break now. on this one and just say "Love of Beauty?" Question mark as our final note on Nightwood. All right, that's our second episode on Nightwood, and I hope the last of our practice pancake episodes. Thank you so much for listening here at Lit Century, especially while we're still learning the ropes on podcasting. We have a little more experience having opinions about books. Um, Anyway, we'd love to thank Adam Bear for our podcast music and Lit Hub for hosting us. We have some incredible guests coming on our next episodes on Nella Larson's passing from 1929. First, we'll be talking to Megan Abbott, author of many books, including Dare Me, that was uh, made into a television show recently. And um, then the week after that, we have Caitlin Greenwich, who's the author of We Love You, Charlie Freeman. And she also wrote the very insightful preface for the new edition of Passing for Penguin Random House. So you can imagine how excited we were to get both of them to come talk to us. Um, until then if you'd like to write to us send an email to litcenturypodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at litcenturypodcast because we'd love to hear from you so goodbye till next week